Off Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Katherine Burns. This time, we have three stories about guiding lights, powerful voices and forces that shape us, even when they can't be explained by science or logic. We're going to hear about a magical bird who played humans, and often beat them, at tic-tac-toe, and the story of a young murdered boy who appeared to his grieving mother in a series of dreams not long after his death. But first, those voices that, if we listen carefully, guide us in our decisions. Scientists are now finding that the nerves in our digestive system are so in tune with us that they act almost as a second brain. There's a reason we call it having a gut feeling. Mr. Andre DeShields is a Tony Award-winning actor. He told his story when our friends at the Broadway show Town lent us their stage for the night in celebration of the moth's 25th anniversary. Andre originated the role of the Wizard of Oz in the groundbreaking 1975 Broadway production of The Wiz. As we rehearsed his story, he realized that his biggest number from that show was thematically in line with the moth story he was telling. And so, in a moth first, we let him end his story in a song. Here's Andre DeShields live at the Kerr Theater. It's the winter of 1946. Very early in the morning on a cold day in the month of January. Colder than a witch's tit in a brass brazier. The circumstances portend something momentous is about to happen when, boom! I was evicted from my mother's womb. (laughs) A prodigious 12 pounds at birth. I would later learn that the weight of the 12 pounds was the weight of dreams deferred. My parents brought 11 crumb snatchers into this world. Six boys, Sylvester, William, John, George, Jeffrey, Andre, five girls, Desney, Edwina, Mary, Carmen, Iris. When I was old enough to have an adult conversation with my parents, I asked my mother, Mom, why did you have so many children? She answered, well, Andre child, I told your father that if he ever put anything on it, he wasn't getting in here. (laughs) Mom. (laughs) Is that really what you wanted to do? have so many children that you couldn't take care of them? She says, no, child, I wanted to be a chorus girl. That's the term she used. She didn't say dancer. She said, I wanted to be a chorus girl. Well, what happened? 
Well, my mother, your grandmother said to me, ain't no decent colored daughter of mine gonna shuffle her way through life. We barely shuffled our way off the plantation. My mother being born around the turn of the 20th century. I had a similar conversation with my father who wanted to be a singer, I had a beautiful tenor voice, and he sang in community choirs and in church. His father said to him, how are you going to be a responsible father and husband pursuing an irresponsible career as a singer? My father deferred his dreams. I thought that somewhere in that mix of 11 children, the X and Y chromosomes of the deferred dreams of my parents would commingle, would coordinate, would collaborate, would consummate finally in the conception of one of the children who would manifest those deferred dreams. I'm lucky number nine. <laughs> my muse was my sister, Iris. I asked my mother, why did you name her Iris? It's such a, it's such a beautiful name. Do you know what it means? She says, no, child, I just like the name. Well, now we know that Iris is an ancient Greek name identifying the goddess of the rainbow. Now, Iris was the first person in the family to see me. I mean, really see me. She recognized my kingly potential as I recognized her warrior goddess attitude. Iris was my protection. When the bullies would come after me after school, Iris would say, uh-uh, leave my brother alone or I will tear your head off your neck and shove it up your ass. <laughs> now, you have to appreciate that the 12 pounds I weighed at birth grew into a kind of jiggly belly. <laughs> Not because I was obese, but because I was malnourished. And you know, if you're not getting the right nutrition, if you're eating Wonder Bread and sugar all the time, your belly is going to swell. And I would walk down the street and it would move. So they nicknamed me Jelly Belly. Immediately after that, they shortened it to jelly. Now why jelly? Because jam don't shake like that. 
I would go to school with my books on my hips, just, you know, jellying all over the place. <laughs> and of course, the guys who thought it was cool to be dumb would come after me. And Iris came to me one day and she said, you know what, I can help you. Take those books off your Tootsie Roll hips. <laughs> Put them in a belt, throw it over your shoulder, and everything's gonna be all right. She was my protection. Iris was my inspiration. Iris introduced me to the adult life of blue lights in the basement. Iris taught me how to dance. We did the chicken, we did the Lindy, we did the Watusi, we did the Birdland, we did everything and we did it strong. We would bop, bop, a loop, bop, shabop, bam, boom, all night long. And we made a pact. Let's be entertainers together. And we vowed to one another, we dance or we die. <laughs> now, we both wanted to get out of Baltimore. I got out by being the first child to go to college. Iris could not get out of Baltimore because she couldn't get from under the strong hand of our devout Christian mother. So she married at the age of 16, and that gave her egress out of the house. We kept in touch as I traveled, and I said, Iris, anytime you want to call me, just drop a dime. That's the late 60s, early 70s. <laughs> or call me, collect, and we'll talk. 1975, I achieved my first national attention as the title character in The Wiz. But more exciting than that, The Wiz did a three-city pre-Broadway tryout, and the first city it played was Baltimore, Maryland. So the entire family came out, and Iris came with her two children, and we sat and we talked, and we talked about the vow that we had made. And she said, Andre, I'm so proud of you. I said, thank you, Iris. She said, but my dream, I said, don't even say it. And then we were on to Detroit, and then Philadelphia, and then New York. And then my phone rang, and it was Sister Iris. And she said to me, Andre, I hear voices. I said, so do I. <laughs> I said, what do your voices say to you? She said, they just call my name. Iris. 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 I said, do you ever answer? She said, no. I said, why not? She said, I'm afraid. 
Iris, I'm going to come and visit you as soon as I get a chance. The chance came two years later, 1977. I visited Iris after she had been visited by the Big C. The Big C took her hair. The Big C took her weight. The Big C took her breasts. The Big C took her cervix. And she said to me as I visited her in the hospital, why me? I said, Iris, don't go there. You have two children who love you. You have a husband who loves you as well as he can. And when you go to heaven, you can take your dreams with you. Remember what your name is. Iris, goddess of the rainbow. And what do we know about rainbows? that somewhere over the rainbow, dreams do come true. If you believe within your heart, you know that no one can change the path that you must go believe what you feel and know your right because The time will come around When you say it's yours Believe there's a reason to be Time stands still and know from the moment you try if you believe I know you will believe in yourself right from the start believe in the magic inside your heart believe all these things not because I told you to but believe in yourself Oh!
Thank you. In a career spanning more than half a century, Andre DeShields was the Triple Crown winner of the 2019 award season, garnering Tony, Outer Critics Circle, and Drama Desk Awards, as well as a Grammy for his universally praised role as Hermes, Messenger to the Gods, in the musical Town. He's an actor, director, philanthropist, and educator who had roles in the original Broadway productions of The Full Monty, Play On, Ain't Misbehavin', and of course, The Wiz. Andre and I recently sat down to talk more about his family. My father, at the age 50, died. I was 17. However, that raises the stakes for me thinking that I was going to run out of time in my own life to become the embodiment, the manifestation of the deferred dreams of both my parents that even to this moment continue to inspire me. Although I do not believe that my parents are in heaven looking down upon me, I do know that they know that I have achieved because of them. We talked about how Andre felt he was truly seeing Iris for the first time when she told him about hearing voices. And what I wanted Iris to understand was this. The voice that you hear calling your name is another iteration of you. The you that wants to be free. The you that sees a different path. The you that sees a way to be your most authentic self. If she would hold on to that seed of information, it would eventually make sense. It would eventually be enlightenment. But in 1977, she died. That was Andre DeShields. He's currently starring in the revival of Death of a Salesman on Broadway. Coming up, the writer Calvin Trillin and the mystery of a chicken who plays tic-tac-toe. That's when the Moth Radio Hour continues. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Katherine Burns. In this hour, we're talking about unseen forces in the world. Next up, a story recorded at the New York Public Library's Celeste Bartos Forum, where we partnered with Live from the NYPL. Here's Calvin Trillin, Live at the Moth. I live in Greenwich Village, which I usually describe as a neighborhood where people from the suburbs come on Saturday night to test their car alarms. Uh, uh, Some years ago, I fell into the habit of taking out-of-town guests for a walk in lower Manhattan. We'd start out of my house, go through the Italian South Village, through Soho, 
spend an awkward two or three blocks in the machine tool district, uh, <laughs> then Little Italy, and then Chinatown, where after a dim sum lunch, the guest was permitted to play tic-tac-toe with a chicken. <laughs> this was a real chicken in an amusement arcade on Mott Street. I lived in a glass cage. And the glass cage was outfitted with those backlit letters that you're familiar with if you wasted your childhood playing pinball. Um, on the on the cage were words like bird's turn, your turn. <laughs> and there were buttons you could push to put your X's where you wanted them. When you did that, the chicken would go behind what was called the thinking booth <laughs> and peck its answers. Um, and if you beat the chicken, got a large bag of fortune cookies <laughs> worth probably 35 or 40 cents <laughs> and it only cost 50 cents to play. <laughs> but the chicken was very good at tic-tac-toe. <laughs> Everybody I took down there looked over the situation and said the same thing. The chicken gets to go first. <laughs> and I would say, but he's a chicken. Uh, you're a human being. Surely there should be some advantage to that. And then many of them, not all of them, but a distressingly high number of them, would say, the chicken plays every day. Uh, I haven't played since I was a kid. They were wise to get their excuses in at the beginning of the game because none of them ever beat the chicken. Chicken was very good at tic-tac-toe. There were different explanations to uh, explain why this was true. Some people thought a computer was involved. Some people thought it was a very intelligent chicken. <laughs> In my house, it was common to refer to somebody we'd met who seemed particularly clever by saying, she's smart as a Chinatown chicken. Even before I started taking people down there, the writer Roy Blunt Jr. told me that from what he had heard once, the chicken had been trained by former graduate students of B.F. Skinner. <laughs> you know, the legendary behavioral psychologist. I always hoped this was true, since it was a refutation of the false teaching the graduate work is of no value in the everyday world. <laughs> it turns out that Roy had been accurately informed. A former graduate student of B.F. Skinner had gone with her husband to Hot Springs, Arkansas and started training animals. 
including chickens who could play tic-tac-toe. In fact, it, it turned Hot Springs, Arkansas into the small animal training capital of the world. It also happens to be Bill Clinton's hometown. As far as I know, those facts are unrelated. But there is sort of a cottage industry of animal training in Hot Springs. I once interviewed a man who ran a place called Educated Animals, the former IQ Zoo. He had a Vietnamese pig who drove a Cadillac, a parrot who roller skated, and an act that consisted of a chicken dancing while a rabbit played the piano and a duck played the guitar. I said, what tune do they play? He said, their choice. And then the chicken died. I was, of course, heartbroken. I was cheered by the story about it in the New York Times, which was a beautiful story. Obviously, somebody who had played the chicken many times <laughs> was, had respect for an opponent even after being beaten by the chicken that many times. I've, I've seen congressmen sent off with less effusive obituaries. <laughs> There were still people in Hot Springs, Arkansas, who trained chickens, but the chicken was not replaced. Uh, another one of those electronic games came in its place. From what I heard, the animal people had put some pressure on the arcade not to have the chicken. And they can be quite persistent. <laughs> I once wrote a column about something I had heard on, on CBC in Canada uh, that a hummingbird weighs as much as a quarter. That's an interesting fact. I, what, I, what I made me think was, does it weigh as much as two dimes and a nickel? Uh, but my daughters were sort of alarmed by how you'd go about weighing a hummingbird, because they always seemed to be in motion. And, to set their minds at rest, I said, well, we've all seen those nature documentaries where somebody shoots a dart, stun dart into a wildebeest, and after a while, after putting some tracer on it, wakes up and it's good as new. You do the same thing with hummingbirds. <laughs> um, the hard part isn't even hitting him with that little bitty dark. The hard part is slapping him on the cheeks to bring him around. <laughs> um, the animal people objected to that. Once I happened to mention in a column that corgis are a breed of dog that appear to have been assembled from parts of other breeds of dogs. <laughs> And not the parts those dogs were all that sorry about losing. You know. 
You'd be surprised how many corgi owners there are. Well, I, um, I was, my hopes for the replacement of the chicken were dashed when it was obvious that the animal people were not going to give up. They said that a chicken playing tic-tac-toe, that was demeaning to a chicken. <laughs> I wish they could have seen the, the film clip that I've seen of B.F. Skinner himself playing tic-tac-toe with the chicken. B.F. <laughs> Skinner is smiling, but if you look closely, it's a nervous smile. <laughs> Being one of the giants of behavioral psychology, he knows how good that chicken is in tic-tac-toe. The chicken is looking supremely confident he knows he is about to beat in tic-tac-toe a distinguished professor of psychology from Harvard. <laughs> Demeaning. <laughs> that chicken is stinky with self-esteem. <laughs> Thank you. That was Calvin Trillin. He's a longtime staff writer at The New Yorker and also The Nation magazine's deadline poet. If you'd like to read more about the chicken, you can read Mr. Trillin's original New Yorker story, which goes into more detail about the famous fowl. You can find a link at our website, themoth.org. Coming up, a murdered six-year-old begins appearing in his mother's dreams with messages. That's when the Moth Radio Hour continues. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Katherine Burns. Our final story is one that touches on a tough topic. It may not be right for all of our listeners. It's told by the luminous Francine Lobus Wheeler, whose son Ben was murdered during the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. It's not an easy story to hear, but Francine is one of the kindest, funniest, and most honest people I've met in all my years at the Moth. And so you're in the best of hands with this story. Live at St. Anne's Church in Brooklyn, here is Francine Lobus Feeler. On December 25th, 2012, it was Christmas morning, about 11 in the morning. We just opened presents, and I turned to my husband, David, and I said, I can't sleep, I can't eat, I can't breathe. And he said, honey, just, just try to relax, you know, um, go lay down. And I said, no, I can't, I can't. And I was like that because 11 days before that, on December 14th, 2012, 
Our son Ben was murdered in his first grade classroom at Sandy Hook Elementary School. So that Christmas morning, I really couldn't do anything. But David, my husband, he convinced me to go lay down, so I did. And I was so exhausted that I immediately fell asleep. And as soon as I was asleep, I looked to the side of the bed, and there was Ben. He didn't say anything. He just opened the palm of my hand. He kissed it. He closed the palm of my hand. And I woke up. And I ran to David, and I said, oh my gosh, Dee, Ben came to me, and, and, and he kissed my hand, and I know why, I know why. And he said, why? And I said, because of the book I used to read to him, The Kissing Hand, where the mother, the mother raccoon, she kisses her son Chester's hand when he's scared to go to school. And, and she says, just know that my love for you is always there. And so that's what Ben gave me that day. So then after that, I was asking him to come back. Please come back. Show me another sign. Please come visit me. Please, please, please. I miss you so much. And sure enough, a couple weeks later, he did. He came back in another dream. And in this dream, I was standing in the second floor of an elevator, and I went to the first floor. And then I went to the basement, and the doors opened. And there was Ben. And he said, Mommy, you made it. I'm so glad. And we hugged, and we kissed, and I said, I love you. And he said, I love you. And it was real. And he said, but Mama, I'm happy, but we're really worried about you. Don't let them trademark you. Now, when Ben was alive, he wanted to be smart like his big brother, Nate, and he would often use these very long words <laughs> to try and sound smart, but sometimes the words didn't always match uh, the sentence. And so in the dream, I said to him, are you sure you mean trademark? And he said it again, don't let them trademark you, mama. And then I woke up. And I told everybody about the dream. What do you think he meant by trademark? Do you think he meant Sandy Hook shooting? What was it? What did he mean? What did he mean? And in the meantime, that all this is going on, when you lose somebody that traumatically, that, that, that violently, that suddenly, you go back and you rethink things over and over and over again. And I kept thinking about the last day of his life over and over and over again in my head. And it was an interesting morning, because I was getting Nate and Ben ready for school, and I suddenly realized that Nate had book club. And I said, oh my gosh, guys, I forgot it. We gotta drop off Nate first. Uh, all right, get your stuff together. We gotta move, we gotta move. And I'm trying to clean up, and I'm stacking the dishwasher, and Benny comes over to me and he says, Mama, what does forgiveness mean? And I was like, oh, Ben, why are you asking me this right now? Come on, we gotta go, we gotta go. And he said, no, no, Mommy. What is forgiveness? And I said, I don't know, Ben. It's like when you do something wrong and the other person forgets about it. Now, come on, we got to go. 
So I pack him up, we get in the car, we drop off Nate, and I say to Ben, okay, Ben, you want to go back home and wait for the bus? Or do you want to go to Starbucks for a treat? And he said, Starbucks. So we went to Starbucks, and he ordered a chocolate milk. I used to tell the story and said hot chocolate, but then I found the receipt. It was chocolate milk, and we sat down, and he said, you know what, Mama? I'm going to be an architect when I grow up. And I said, wow, Ben, that's amazing. And he said, no, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to be an architect and a paleontologist because Nate's going to be a paleontologist and I have to do everything Nate does. And I said, well, you know, you're your own person, Ben. You, you don't have to do whatever your brother does. And he said, oh, no, no. No, I'm always going to be with Nate. I love Nate. And I love you, Mommy. And I said, I love you too. <laughs> you know, it's so nice to just be here, just the two of us. We never get that chance to do that. And then he said, Mommy, can I have your iPhone? So I gave him the iPhone. <laughs> and a couple minutes later, I took him to school. And a half hour later, he was dead. So I kept reliving that over and over and over. Did it happen? Was it that special? Did we really say I love you to one another? What, what was that? And in the meantime that this is all happening, Newtown, where the school is, is just exploded, like a bomb has gone off. And everybody is traumatized. And there are grief counselors and trauma specialists flying in from all over the country trying to help us make some sense of any of it. And, and, and while this is all going on, you know, we're, we're just, we, we can't breathe. And I still have to raise my other child. So I take my son Nate to Lego camp one day in the middle of all of this craziness. And I walk in the door and I see these women and they're talking and they look at me and they stop talking. And then I keep walking and I could have sworn I heard one of them say, she lost her son at Sandy Hook. Another time I went to the grocery store, I still had to get groceries and I shopping and I see this woman, she looks at me, she starts to cry, she goes in the other direction. Most of the time the conversations in the grocery store, I'd run into somebody I sort of knew and they'd say, hi Fran, how are you? Oh my God, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, I don't know what to say. And I'd say, I don't know what to say. And then they'd say, I think about you all the time. If there's anything you ever need, you know, we should get the boys together. And I'd say, I like that. That would be great. And they wouldn't call. And I thought, I just want people around me. One time, I was running a 5K for my son Ben's charity. And I'm doing the run, and I meet this other runner, and he says, tell me about your son's charity. And I said, well... It's, it's in honor of my son, Ben, who died at Sandy Hook School. And he said, oh my God, really? And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, I remember where I was that day on December 14th. And I thought to myself, please don't tell me where you were that day. I don't want to know. I just, and, but he did. 
He did. And he said, oh yeah, we were going to have a Christmas party for my company. We heard about all those kids and teachers getting shot, so we canceled the party, we gave all that money to Sandy Hook, and I went home and hugged my kids. It was an awful day. Yeah. I was so pissed at him. I couldn't understand why he would do that. Another time, one day, I was out, and this woman came up to me and she said, I don't know if you know me, but I'm from Sandy Hook. And I thought, oh God, please, don't tell me. Don't tell me how this makes you feel. I don't want to know. I really don't want to know. And she said, I happened to be at Starbucks on the morning of December 14th. And I said, oh. And she said, you know, I'm not really in the habit of eavesdropping, but I happen to notice what a beautiful conversation you were having with your son that day. And I thought maybe you'd want to know, or I could tell you that. I said, thank you. And I started to weep and weep. And she said, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to upset you. And I said, oh no, 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 no. You have no idea what you did. What is forgiveness, Mommy? It's when somebody does something wrong and the other person forgets about it. You know, I've had almost nine years without Ben. And in that time, I've often imagined what life would have been like if he had survived the shooting. And I bet I would have said something stupid or put my foot in my mouth or said too much or made it about me when I talked to a victim's family. And I get it because we don't know how to grieve in this country. We don't know how to grieve in our culture. And I'm not mad at those people anymore. I forgive them. Don't let them trademark you. That's a little different. My husband David and I do not have the luxury of not being trademarked by the Sandy Hook shooting because our son Ben died that day. But nobody can trademark my kissing hand, my beautiful conversation at Starbucks, or the six years, three months, and two days that our son Ben lived, nobody can trademark my love for him. Thank you. Francine Lobus Wheeler is an actor, singer, songwriter, teacher, wife and mother to three boys. She has performed in regional theaters and sung with swing bands and recording artists. Francine is the creative director of Ben's Lighthouse, a nonprofit promoting empathy and compassion for children, and she runs her summer camp based on her original programming, puppetry, and music. 
Currently, Francine and her creative team are in pre-production under Teleplay Just Five Minutes, which will be filmed and streamed next year. With the music and book written by Francine, Just Five Minutes is her journey through grief, trauma, and survival. I recently had a chance to sit down and talk with Francine. How should people act uh, around a grieving person whose personal loss is like tied into national or international events? Like, were there things that people did that were helpful to you at the time? If they come up with ideas and if all the answers are no, that's okay. For example, if somebody were to come up to me and say, would you like an ear? Would you like a cup of coffee? Would you like me to come visit? Would you like to be left alone? Would you like me to uh, bring you dinner? Would you tell me what is the best thing right now that you need? And I will sit and listen. So what often happened was, let me know if you need anything. Or I can't imagine what you're going through and there's nothing I can say, so you tell me. The problem with that answer is it requires the grieving to to be active. And I mean, just to give you an example, with Uvalde happened, I was in bed for a couple of days and, and I didn't even realize that's what I was doing. But it was those people, I had a friend that came in to my house and brought me a meal and then left. You know, and that, not that you have to cook for people. My point is that if you, if you are an active listener and an active doer, even if that means you want to be left alone, do you want to be left alone? Ask that brave question. What's the worst thing that can happen? The grieving person could yell at you. Yes. Is it about you? Nope. It's about their loss. So don't worry about it. Just try and, and be courageous. Just offer. Offer. It's a great way to say it. Just offer. I had totally forgotten that in some version of your story, we talked about you singing jo- Joni Mitchell's Both Sides. That song uh, is about joy and grief. It's about mm-hmm. doing both at the same time. In one of the drafts of your story, you wrote out, but now old friends are acting strange. They shake their heads. They say I've changed. Well, something's lost and something's gained in living every day. Yeah, it makes me tear up, you know, because... You know, there are people that were pissed. They were pissed. They didn't, they wanted the old Fran and that Fran died with Ben. How can I erase Ben's existence? Because that's what people are asking me to do when they want me to be that Fran. They want me to be the one, you know, that goes, okay, we got to move on. You had a new child. We're all good now. No, no, I'm sorry. That doesn't work like that. Do you think there are, limits to your forgiveness or is it wide open? I told my story to recently to middle schoolers and I talked about forgiveness and they immediately said, do you forgive the shooter and the shooter's mother? And I say, no, no, I don't need to. I don't need to. I, that's not part of my story. They're not part of my story. So I forgive uh, myself for sending Ben to school. I forgive others who don't know how to grieve or to honor the grief. Um, I forgive them because it doesn't help me to move forward. 
And so the forgiveness is about acceptance and acknowledgement, but it doesn't mean I have to be friends or be happy around those people or bring them into my world. It just means that I can accept their actions and understand it and move on from that. Um, And uh, that's where my forgiveness comes from. That was Francine Lobes-Wheeler. To see photos of Francine and Ben, go to themoth.org. That's it for this episode of the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. This episode of The Moth Radio Hour was produced by me, Jay Allison, and Catherine Burns, who also hosted and directed the stories. Co-producer, Vicki Merrick. Associate producer, Emily Couch. The rest of The Moth's leadership team includes Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Jeunesse, Jennifer Hickson, Meg Bowles, Kate Tellers, Jennifer Birmingham, Marina Cluche, Suzanne Rust, Brandon Grant, Inga Gladowski, Sarah Jane Johnson, and Aldi Casa. Special thanks to Ken Melamed, Molly Ringwald, Sue Liebman, and the team at the Kerr Theater. Most Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Chet Baker, O'Donnell Levy, and The Westerlies. We receive funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. And special thanks to the Ford Foundation's BUILD, Women's Leader Program, for its support of the Moth Global Community Program. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching us your own story and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org.